The Tiger Tamer Who Went to Sea from History Extra charts the life of a remarkable Victorian, Britain's original long-distance wheelbarrow pedestrian. New episodes are out every Thursday or listen to the whole series immediately ad-free by subscribing to History Extra Plus on Apple Podcasts or listening on historyextra.com. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Isn't the point of traveling to get away from it all? To feel the best you've ever felt? Then maybe you should check out Aruba. You'll spend your time relaxing on cool, white, sandy beaches and floating in healing blue water. You'll meet locals brimming with gratitude for an island that redefines what a paradise can be. When your trip comes to an end, you won't need another vacation. Because you just had the vacation. That's the Aruba effect. Plan your trip at aruba.com. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. The guest on today's episode is Valerie Hansen, Professor of History at Yale and the author of The Year 1000, When Explorers Connected the World and Globalisation Began. World History's editor, Matt Elton, spoke to Valerie about why it was 1000 AD, rather than 1492, that saw people take the first meaningful step towards the interconnected world we know today, and why that story has often been overlooked. What do you think is the established historical view of the start of globalisation? I don't think there's a single historiographical view of when globalization began. I think there are probably two dominant paradigms. One of them would locate globalization in the late 1970s, and the other one uh, would uh, put it earlier, probably around 1500. Okay. And And the difference would just have to do with, I think everyone would um, acknowledge that the 1970s were the you know, full flowering of globalization, uh, especially with outsourcing of manufacturing and the ease of travel uh, as as maybe the two main things you could point to. The 1500 argument would be to say that the Columbus and da Gama and Magellan tied together the world in a way that uh, hadn't occurred before. And if I could just say, like, what I am trying to do in this book um, is grant that, yes, something did happen in 1500, but something very important happened in the year 1000 that made the changes of 1500 possible. So your book focuses obviously on the year 1000. Why do you think that that year's importance hasn't been highlighted sufficiently elsewhere before? I think it has to do basically with a shift away from Eurocentric narrative. So if you focus your gaze only on the North or the Mid-Atlantic, 
let's just say the mid-Atlantic, um, then, of course, you will say 1492 is the beginning of contact, Europe's contacts with um, other parts of the world. But if you look globally around the world, you'll see that those contacts started much earlier, in fact, around the year 1000. Um, and this is obviously an impossibly broad question in a sense, but what was the world like in the year 1000? If we were to travel back from the 21st century to the year 1000, what would we what would we see at different point, you know, points in the world? Well, I think the main difference that everyone would notice immediately is the lack of um, electricity or steam power or fossil fuels, right? This is the world in the year 1000 is a world where people are walking or sailing or rowing to get around. Of course, there's no communication telephones or um, anything like that. The, there's no there's no factor electric you know uh, electricity run power, uh, factories there is a lot of mass manufacturing i think much more than we imagine today is possible there were uh, you know factories capable of producing in in china the the world's um, leading manufacturer then uh, factories capable of producing several thousand ceramic pots in a single firing but it was done with wood or um, sometimes coal or coke, the fuel of the for the kilns, and then there's a large labor force. They're just not sitting in a room powered by electric light. They're still functioning with natural light. I also think it's a world that um, is not capitalist in any sense that we understand it today. Mm. That they're uh, you know they're, the richest people are merchants and they're making things and selling things, but there's no stock market any place in the world yet. Um, do we have a sense of what the world population was in a thousand AD? It's about two hundred and fifty million. Okay. And uh, China's population is probably around a hundred million, so that's forty percent of the world's population then. And China's proportion of the world population is somewhere between a quarter and two-fifths, a quarter, a third, two-fifths of the world's population um, over all time. Are there any other ways in which the year, the, the world of a thousand is more similar to the world of today than we might expect? The well, I think the the first thing is that um, it was a world with multiple power centers. So it, you know, the world after 1500, really Europe is the most powerful uh, nation, and the most of the exploration that's going on is coming out. Of, I was going to say coming out of Europe is being done by European explorers. So whereas in the year 1000, China's an important power, the Islamic world is an important power. To tell the truth, Europe is still very far behind um, the Islamic world and China. It, the people, I mean, you know, European historians see um, a huge increase in Europe's economic power and strength, starting really with the Crusades around um, 1100 and then accelerating in 1200 and 1300. The, so there's the different parts of the people living in the different regions of the world are much more evenly balanced. So in that sense, it's much more like our world today. And then a major similarity, and this would be true, I think, of any period in the past, although we tend to forget this, that uh, the people are themselves just this, 
but people like us, and they react in the same way, and they are frightened by new things, or some people are curious about new opportunities. And that's what makes it so interesting, I think, to look at this world and imagine ourselves facing the decisions that people were facing then and thinking about how we might do do what they decided to do. Um, what were the first sparks of globalization that you identified as happening in 1000 AD? Well, I think the the absolute first one and the and also the one that we can firmly date to the year 1000 is the uh, crossing of the North Atlantic by the Vikings who um, are starting t- uh, from modern Scandinavia and particularly Denmark and then um, moving to Iceland and then from Iceland to Greenland and then from Greenland to what is now Canada um, to uh, to uh, north it's funny when we say northeastern North America. So the um, maritime provinces of um, Quebec and then um, Newfoundland and Labrador. Mm. Um, how, in Canada. How, how can we find out about their voyages? There's two, two kinds of sources. Um, one source that is oral narratives that were written down in Icelandic in about the 12 and 1300s. And these are accounts that families pass down from one generation to the next about their ancestors' accomplishments. And there's a, I think the many historians are skeptical about how accurate those accounts are. I'm one of the people who thinks that they have more information about these voyages than uh, I would say the pure literary view would be that they are entirely fictitious and have no link to actual historic events. But the we know that they have a link to actual historic events because the um, in the 1960s, two Norwegian archaeologists, well, actually a diplomat and his archaeologist wife, um, the Ingstads, uh, used the narratives to find, to look for um, the places where the Vikings had gone, and they found um, an archaeological site at the, a Canadian town. It's on the northern tip of the island of Newfoundland, uh, called, and the site is called Lansaw Meadows. And that is a there's no in, indisputably um, that is an archaeological site testifying to the Norse crossings of the North Atlantic. So that, I think, is the moment that the book starts with and that we can look at and say is the beginning of this earlier wave of globalization. Then we can look around the world and see that in different places, but in many different places, uh, that uh, people are building, well, are moving to new places. I think this is linked to that question about population that maybe when the world reaches, maybe I shouldn't say maybe, we'll just say when the world <laughs> reaches a population of 250 million, that seems to be a tipping point and people start to go f- to new places. There's no new technology. There's no technological breakthroughs. But And the, and the when the Vikings cross the Atlantic, they're crossing it in sailboats that they also have oars. So it's very and and there's um, no evidence that they used any um, any navigational instruments. That this is just they're um, sailing by with a sense of uh, the 
uh, I was going to say, by paying attention to um, the stars and um, the tides and having a sense that, like, when they see birds, that they'll be getting near to an island and or a settlement, some kind of human settlement. So that, um, and the, anyway, so all around the world, so it's the Vikings are crossing the um, North Atlantic. The There are sailors, the ancestors of the modern um residents of Malaysia who speak a, a Polynesian language, a language related to Polynesian, so they're called the Malayo-Polynesians. They um, they cross the Pacific. We have Chinese navigators going into the Indian Ocean. So this is happening all around the world. Rather than being a technologically driven breakthrough, can we see this as being a breakthrough driven by agriculture? It's It's definitely, agriculture plays a role because it contributes to the rise in population. Right, that because you have um, in the main agricultural centers of Afro-Eurasia, oh, and we know a little bit about the Maya, but so in um, Western Europe, in, in England and France, in China, um, especially southern China, in the Islamic world, so the area around modern, the area of modern Iraq, um, we have a lot of agricultural innovation occurring, and uh, we know that productivity is going up. And that productivity frees some people from having to work the land. Uh, and th- the same is, is probably true in the Maya heartland in um, Mexico in the uh, yeah, in, I was going to say in the Maya heartland in Mexico. The, uh, and that, so that increase in population, I think, certainly contributes to the globalization. But I think the sea journey part of it is key to seeing um, the integration of different regions. There's also a lot of overland travel. Um, there are new routes opening up across Afro-Eurasia, but also that's one of the things that's very interesting about the Americas. We have no written documents from the Maya from the year 1000. The last Maya inscriptions are from around 900. But the um, we know archaeologically, we can see archaeologically um, evidence of contact between the Maya. So at, in the year 1000, their biggest city is an, on the Yucatan Peninsula, uh, contact between them and the American, what we call the Southwest. So the states of um, Utah and Arizona, um, Colorado. And there um, is a trade in chocolate. The Maya have figured out um, how to process cacao beans, and they're drinking unsweetened chocolate, and they drink it as a stimulant. And so there's exporting that to this region of uh, New Mexico and Utah. And then the people there are exporting um, turquoise in the, uh, sending sending turquoise in the opposite direction to the Maya. That's a place where archaeology can help us reconstruct those roots. And we can see um, new trade routes that um, we may not be able, we don't have written evidence for the Americas about, but by looking at the presence of commodities from one place that are indigenous to another, we can be quite confident that trade is taking place. You write that it's important to state that the Norse um, didn't start trade in the Americas. What they did was connect uh, trade networks that had already begun there with a wider kind of global network. Well, it's funny. I th- what I actually said was that the um, that's true of the Spanish. Okay. I, I mean, you know, with with Christopher Columbus. So, because when the Norse come, they are there for just about ten years, and there's um, very little evidence. We, I mean, in the um, Vinland sagas, they they describe encounters 
between the indigenous peoples and the Norse and the um, and the kind of trading that's taking place. In one of the accounts, the Norse are trading red cloth. In another account, they're trading um, milk and maybe some kind of cheese for um, the furs. That's the product that the um, indigenous peoples um, present, present to the Norse. But the um, if in the year 1000, we can see all across um, North America, and then some of it connecting to the um, Andean region in South America, these trade routes. And then um, what's interesting is Columbus, when Columbus arrives in the Caribbean, his son is with him, his his illegitimate son. And um, the son has left us a description of uh, a canoe, a Maya canoe, that is a, tra- a giant trade um, canoe. It's it's supposed to be as big as a Venetian gal, gal, galley, and so of course people debate debate how big that is. But um, you know, it could be uh, let me think in meters, thirty meters long, maybe. And the um, it is loaded with trade goods that are circulating all between um, Mexico and then the islands of the Caribbean. And so um, so that's what. I mean, that pre-existing set of trade networks is what the Spanish plug into in um, the Americas. And then a similar pre-existing trade network has taken shape in Africa, and that's what the Portuguese managed to plug into when they um, land on the uh, West African coast. What was the situation in Africa? Again, starting around the year 1000, and it's just funny in so many parts of the world that when you look at what's going on, so many events seem to cluster um, around the year 1000. But the and so we have a one of the we have a detailed account of um, different towns in Africa along trade routes uh, written by. Um, written in Arabic by a scholar named Al-Bakri, who's actually living in in Spain, in, in Cordoba. He doesn't go to Africa, but he writes about Africa, and he writes about the conversion of local rulers to Islam. He also talks about the trade that's taking place, and there's a key trade, it's a triangle trade that uh, starting on the Mediterranean ports of North Africa, uh, traders are uh, bringing cloth and some European-like beads. We, we would say manufactured goods, except they weren't made in factories. They're handicrafts. And um, those goods are then the um, Africans are at the uh at those ports in the on the North African coast are trading the main commodities that are leaving Africa. So that's gold um, and also um, some slaves. Um, so the and then the triangle trade is that those manufactured those sorry not manufactured goods those handicraft goods from Europe um, are carried overland to um, the salt mines in the Sahara and then the, at there they're traded for salt and then the caravans carry the salt farther south where they trade the salt for gold and slaves and then they um, return take the return trip um, to back up to those Mediterranean ports. So Africa is definitely connected by trade to um, the the Mediterranean and then also to uh, the Islamic world to the um, which is to the east of Africa. And so because of those contacts, we have um, a written record that we can work with. So we have more information about what's going on in Africa than we do um, in the Americas. You mentioned Islam there. What role did that religion and Christianity play in driving this change? The 
it's I was going to say in the year 1000 it's the the what we now call the world religions a lot of them get their start gain traction um in the year 1000 so it's islam uh christianity there's no protestantism yet right the reformation hasn't happened but there's the uh, there's the um, Roman, Christ- Roman, Roman Christianity and then Eastern Orthodoxy. Uh, there's also Hinduism and Buddhism, and all of these religions um, have an appeal to the rulers of smaller countries that are trying to figure out how to become more powerful. And so they, um, these different rulers are—most of them are have gained power by the usual means, killing their rivals, winning a few battles, and they uh, have their, most of their people are worshiping local deities, and they see that they have um, there are rulers they hear about. That's one of the things. The circulation of information um, is increases around the year one thousand, and they hear about pow- powerful rulers, and then they make a decision about which religion to adopt, uh, which larger religion to adopt, so that they can ally with those rulers and um, enhance their own power. And the best example of that is a Russian ruler. Well, he's he's the ruler of the Rus. So he's it's the um, in the region of modern Russia. The word Russia comes from Rus, and the prince is named Vladimir. And in um, 985, he makes a, he he has um, been his people. Just as I was saying that they often are these new rulers are uh, living in societies where people are worshiping local de- deities. And Vladimir has takes power in a series of complicated events, including killing two half-brothers. And then he um, puts up shrines to these local deities. But then I think he realizes that he needs something more as a glue to hold his people together. And he's unusual because he sends out fact-finding missions to his neighbors to find out about um, Roman uh, Christianity, uh, Eastern Orthodoxy, Islam, and Judaism. And it's just because his capital is in Kiev. So he's right in the middle of Afro-Eurasia. So he has neighbors that um, follow all of these religions. And then he weighs the pros and cons of those different religions and decides that um, Eastern Orthodoxy is the best religion for him. His envoys come back and they, I mean, the, the record is written after the fact and it's to justify his choice. But when they come back, they say to him that they've seen the church of Hagia Sophia in Constantinople in, in modern Istanbul. And it's so beautiful that um, they just, it's that, ha- that he has to ally with, he has to choose Eastern Orthodoxy because it's so clearly um, the church with the greatest power. And it, and actually, I mean, we think we can think of Hagia Sophia as a technological marvel, um, something like uh, maybe a marvelous architectural um, accomplished building today that would stun everybody when they saw it that it was just so advanced. How common was it for people to make um, quite pragmatic rather than spiritual decisions about following a particular world religion? I think it's very common. I think that's probably the norm. That the we have many accounts where an individual teacher will uh, preach the teachings of his church. I think it's almost always a he, uh, a pre- preachings of his church to a ruler. And so, you know, the rulers are being exposed to church teachings. But the actual decision about which religion to adopt, I think, often boils down to um, what what can the ruler do to enhance his own power? 
So it, it, it was more often than not, not based on religious conviction, but more about keeping up with the neighbours, if you like. Yes, I think that's absolutely true. There's, yeah. there's a, I mean, we have we have many examples of rulers choosing a religion that is associated with a powerful ruler in their neighborhood, uh, and there are extremely few examples of uh, rulers choosing a religion where nobody around them uh, follows that religion. Still to come on the History Extra podcast, and I, so I think that's very important for us that in the world we're looking at today to stay as open as we can to um, other peoples and also to do our best to learn as much as we can about where they're coming from. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Um, you write that as these pathways expanded, um, it allowed kingdoms and empires to brush up against each other and goods, people, microbes and ideas all started intermingling. Are there any particular striking examples of this intermingling that we've not already spoken about that you'd like to highlight, I guess? I think one of the interesting things, um, and this is also a good example of globalization, is that this, I mentioned the Chinese ceramics that were being produced by the thousands. We also know that they were being shipped in huge quantities because we have some shipwrecks that archaeological excavations um, of shipwrecks. And so there, um, and also one of the things about ceramics is that um, art historians can look at a fired pot from somewhere and know just by the color of the clay and the color of the glaze, know where it was manufactured. And the, um, so we have, there are two pots that were found in an Iranian town called Susa. And um, one of them is a Chinese export pot and one of them is a local copy. And that allows us to see that the local copy is um, nowhere near as um, high tech as the Chinese pot. And in a lot of ways, I think the high-fired Chinese ceramics, these are called celadons, and they can be very white, almost translucent, or they can, and they range from that along to a kind of a blue-green. Uh, I think they were the iPhones of their day. They were, you could clean them. They were um, very, very high-fired, so they were uh, they, hard, um, but also the the glaze had melted to a glass, so they were very easy to clean. But anyway, we we can see in these two pots that the um, potters in this Chinese world and the potters in the Middle East were competing for market share, um, and that the Middle East potters uh, didn't have as good a product. They did what they could to emulate the Chinese pots, but they never figured out how to fire them to as high temperatures as the Chinese did. And um, if you look along the East African coast, you would expect East Africa to have mostly Islamic pottery um, in, as import pottery. There's also some indigenous pottery. But we find a surprising number of Chinese pots there too, which testify that, that show that, the, um, that people really did covet these goods, even though they came from the 
the Chinese pots came from so much farther away than the um, Middle Eastern pots. Thank you. Um, Staying with the idea of comparisons between different parts of the world, something that really interests me is the fact that in a thousand, the difference between different people in different parts of the world was less great than it was in 1492, when, because the Europeans had invented advanced weaponry, they defeated most other people. How important of a factor was this? Oh, I think it's a huge factor. One of, I think, the most interesting technological... I don't know, competition. So I just told you about one where the um, Chinese ceramics were um, of a higher quality than the Middle Eastern uh, ceramics. But there's a, another technological competition which where there, the, there's a surprise end. It uh, takes place in Greenland, and we've got the Norse who have settled in southern Greenland, and then they're competing with the um, Thule is the correct pronunciation of uh, this. Um, it's the an indigenous, well, they're not an indigenous people. There are people who are indigenous to Alaska uh, who crossed across North America, the northern edge of North America, uh, so across um, northern Canada, and then from there um, settled, um, moved to Greenland. And the and I was going to say Thule is spelled T-H-U-L-E, and I think most Americans would say Thule. But uh, anyway, the the Thule were uh, competing, and the with well, the the Thule were able to move all the way across North America because they had figured out a huge technological breakthrough of how to um, hunt for baby seals um, year round. And um, they dug holes in the ice and then um, held a feather above the water and just waited and waited until the feather moved. And then that was a sign that there were seals breathing under the water. And they um, used harpoons that had detachable points so they could um, throw a harpoon at um, a seal or actually a larger animal too. And then the um, the animal would break away. The animal was not yet dead, so it could still swim. And it could swim faster than the people hunting it could follow. But they um, used a float so that the animal swam away. But since it had been wounded, it would eventually die, and then they could locate it with the float. So they have this technological innovation. And the interesting thing is that the Norse, who are fighting with them in Greenland, don't adopt those those technologies. So the upshot is that um, in 1400, the last Norse pull out from Greenland, and Greenland is occupied occupied um, entirely by the Thule, and the, the Thule are the ancestors of today's um, Inuit peoples. So that's a good example, I think, of people um, not having these huge technological differences that they do, as you say, have um, in 1500 because of um, the invention of the cannon, really. The cannon and the musket, right, are such um, important, make make such a difference to um, the conflicts between the Europeans and other peoples. And it was that that allowed the Europeans to dominate by the time we get to the 15th century? Yes. Yes. Um, How important do you think it is to have a fresh understanding of this period specifically in being a truly global period of world history? Oh, I think I think it's that's one of the great things about history, right? That we um, are always looking at the past and rethinking our understanding of it. And one of the 
main changes that's happened in my lifetime is that we just know so much more about other parts of the world outside of Europe. And I think part of what my book about is about is archaeological breakthroughs that um, are the like the um, I know about the export of we, or we know about the export of chocolate from the Maya to um, modern New Mexico to Chaco Canyon because of chemical analysis of um, residues in the ceramics. That's that kind of analysis couldn't have been done fifty years ago. Or we know about we have a much we have a sense of how big Angkor Wat was um, because of a technology called LIDAR that um, allows for uh, to archaeologists to reconstruct the size of settlements or to identify buildings um, on the ground that uh, without having to excavate because of by shooting um, rays at the ground and then reading them as they bounce back. So I think it's incredibly important to, I mean, if to understand. Uh, how globalization has evolved and to realize that the world has been dealing with this kind of these kinds of problems for um, much longer than um, anybody has previously thought. Uh, one of the things that's very striking is that we have anti-globalization riots and we have them um, in different parts of the world and early on. So there's um, one in China, there's a massacre of some expat, I mean, it's a grim topic, killing um, foreign merchants who've profited at the benefit of local people, but it's a real thing. It's right. It's a problem we face today too, uh, is the resentment of local people seeing merchants profiting at their expense. But we have a, a, um, the targeting of foreign merchants um, in China in the late 800s. Um, there's a riot in Cairo um, in the uh, around the year 1000 um, against Italian merchants. And then very famously uh, in um, Istanbul, in Constantinople, um, is a riot that uh, takes place. Um, it's called the Massacre of the Latins in the 1170s, where um, the local population turns against the Italian expat merchants. So, you know, I think if we're trying to figure out solutions for our own future, it's very important to understand what's happened in the past because that's maybe our greatest resource for figuring out how to go forward. Mm. Do you think this new view of the year 1000 has any lessons for us in 2020? Well, I think, I mean, when you, when you look at the things that people did and how people reacted, and some people, like we, we have some accounts of when the Norse first arrived that they came across a small group of local people and without even talking to them, they just killed them. Uh, but then we have other Norse who meet, encounter local people, and uh, try to communicate with them. They have no common language and try to do some trading with them. The, um, there's no question that the people who uh, tried to learn about the other peoples and come reach some accommodation with them do better, prosper, um, as opposed to a, those who just have a purely defensive reaction. And I, so I think that's very important for us that— in the world we're looking at today to stay as open as we can to um, other peoples and also to do our best to learn as much as we can about where they're coming from. I think it'll allow us um, to negotiate better with them if we have a better sense of their past and how they understand their past. And as you said about people in 1000, that essentially we're all the same when it comes down to it. Absolutely, right. Everyone is reacting in very human ways. 
And and that's, I think, one of the things about reading about people in the year 1000 is you can just think, oh, I, you know, that that's such a human way to react to the unknown. So you know, if you cut away all of the non-essentials, the technology and the cell phones and the computers, <laughs> and just say, how do people uh, react when they encounter other people? Then that, that's that's what we see happening around the world in the year 1000. That was Valerie Hansen. Her book, The Year 1000, When Explorers Connected the World and Globalization Began, is on sale now, published by Viking. You can also read more from Valerie in issue 22 of BBC World Histories magazine, on sale now. That's available online at buysubscriptions.com. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt and Jack Bateman. Tune in next on Wednesday when Dan Jackson will be discussing the history of Northumbria. Thank you.